Hello and welcome to episode number 220 of Smart Podcast Trashy Books. I'm Sarah Wendell from Smart Bitches Trashy Books and with me today is best-selling author Loretta Chase. Okay, <clears throat> my, my inner 13-year-old is now firmly under control. <clears throat> We're going to talk about her new books, about writing horrible, dreadful men, and where she starts in her writing process. We're also going to talk about historical details, the research that she does, some of her favorite museums, and about deep dives into the rabbit holes of history. And we get to find out about the books that live on her keeper shelf. Most of all, we learn the important lesson of the power of building smoochies, which is easily the best part of this entire interview. Our transcript sponsor is Judy, who is a listener overseas and a generous supporter who loves the transcripts and emailed to ask if she could sponsor one. She tends to overspend on romance novels and perfume, she says, what could be better? She really values our efforts to make the transcripts available and says thanks to Garlic Knitter, maybe more than she could possibly know. Thank you, Judy, for sponsoring the transcript this week. You are incredibly kind, and I am so happy to know that the transcripts make you happy. Our music is provided by Sassy Outwater. I will have information at the end of the show as to who this is. And if you're thinking, I would like to shop for the books that we mentioned, because there's a lot of books that we mentioned, I will have links to all of the places that we talk about, plus links to the books that we mention in the podcast entry. Or you can go to our iTunes store at iTunes.com slash DBSA. It's more of a page than a store, but it's in the store and it's got the last few episodes plus books that we've mentioned and links to download the episodes. So it's pretty handy dandy. So you can go to iTunes.com slash DBSA or Smart Bitches Trashy Books dot com slash podcast and get all the information you're looking for because usually I know you listen when you're you know on the treadmill or walking the dogs or walking the dogs on the treadmill or doing stuff like that. If you are a fine and awesome listener of the show, which you are because you're hearing my voice and you're thinking I would like to support this show, you can have a look at our Patreon page at patreon.com slash smart bitches. For pledges of a dollar a month, three dollars a month, five dollars a month, you can help support the show, help me commission transcripts for all the back episodes, and help me keep the podcast ever increasingly awesome. If you've already sponsored or had a look, thank you very much. You are excellent. I am so excited about this interview and I hope that you enjoy it as much as I did. And now without any delay, on with the podcast with Loretta Chase. Uh, I'm Loretta Chase. I write historical romance novels, uh, the funny kind, I hope, and <laughs> I have been doing this for many, many, many years um, and feel very fortunate um, to have this career, something I uh, never dreamed was going to happen to me when I was dreaming about being a writer. Do you ever look at the total number of books that you've written and just like wonder, like, how did I do that? How did yeah. that happen? <laughs> Especially when I'm struggling with a work in progress. Like, okay, I, how did I do that now? <laughs> I, I used to know how to write a book. I did it last time. What's wrong yeah. this time? Yeah, yeah. So what are you working on right now? Right now, I'm, uh, it's a new, I uh, started a new series. Yeah. I went as far as I could, I thought, with the dressmakers. It's hard for me to talk about um, works that I'm actually working on because they go through so many changes. But what I could tell you is I'm planning a three-book series, um, and it, the uh, each the, it it's works around the heroes, 
Um, and they're three awful men um, who are eventually who are going to make uh, meet the woman who uh, well changes their life and changes um, their outlook on life. Um, I've done awful men before, and I they, I really I love writing about them. The last hero um, in uh, Dukes Prefer Blondes was kind of awful. He was, he was so obnoxious, and it was such a joy to write that kind of character and then find the, what was redeeming about him and who was the right woman for him. That's just an interesting writer's challenge. I've been doing a lot of reading to sort of prepare for this interview, and it's really interesting to see the aggregate of what readers and reviewers and fans talk about when they talk about your books. And invariably, they mention incredibly strong heroines who take none of the hero's crap and some seriously awful men who transform. Yeah, yeah. I, I like that. Um, I, I think it, it just it started with the idea... When I was when I was first thinking about writing romances, I wanted the women to be really strong, um, and uh, I the idea of a woman being the hero of her own story I took very seriously, um, and it seemed to me that a great thing about having strong women was that they could stand up to men who were really dreadful, as is often difficult or impossible in real life for women. So there's that element of the fantasy that I really enjoyed writing about. Plus, that creates a lot of good dialogue. Yes. <laughs> it does. It does. It's, well, yeah, it makes the, the dialogue much more fun when you have that kind of big conflict. Because, And also remembering that the men of this time are – there's women are not supposed to be uppity. They're not supposed to answer back. Um, so it's an extraordinary experience for these men to come up against these women. And that makes the dialogue really fun for me because they don't always know what the woman is going to say. And um, if it's the right guy, of course, he's going to be charmed and challenged by the way she responds to him. When you're writing, do you start with the dialogue or do you start with a scene? I usually have to have the scene in my head. Um, I have to be able to picture where they are. Um, a lot of my stories start with the idea of the place and um, elements of the plot evolve out of, out of the place. You know, it, this is a hard question to answer because I think every book is different. Mm -hmm. um, and sometimes I'll have three lines of dialogue come into my head as I'm falling asleep and I immediately write them down because I know that's what's going to start the next scene or it's going to be integral to the next scene. Um, and if so, you don't write it down, you won't remember. If you're like right. me, if I don't write it down, it's gone. Right. That's why I hate the ones that come to you in the shower. <laughs> really? You know, I'm going to write soap. I, yeah, I and good ones come in the shower too, because that's when you're not, when your mind is free, you're not yep. thinking about your story. It's a, yeah. Like that moment before you're falling asleep and you're thinking, I don't want to get up and write it down. I'll remember tomorrow. But you won't remember tomorrow, so you have to get up and yep. maybe you won't fall asleep for another hour. One thing I've noticed um, about your, your blog, Two Nerdy History Girls, is, A, it's been going for a really long time. Congratulations. Yeah. That's Thank awesome. You. Yeah, that was a surprise to us. 
um, we didn't have any big expectations when we when we started out. We thought we maybe have you know three five followers. Yep, I know that story. I didn't think anyone was going to read Smart Bitches. And, right. and I'm like, oh my God, who are all these people? What are you doing yeah. here? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, we didn't, that was not anything we expected. And we were doing it mainly for our own pleasure um, because we found so many interesting things in the course of doing research. And you know how you can go down those rabbit holes. So, there, we find tons of material we can't use in our books, and this might be contemporary, or it might be from a different period that we're writing about. And we would get on the phone and we would talk about these cool things we found out. So it was just really nice to have this um, place to share them with other people, and then to find other people got as interested as we did. That was just that was the bonus. I have to thank your blog because as I was researching for our interview. Uh-huh. Um, I realized that there's a new post about fashion after the American Revolution at the Daughters of the American Revolution Museum in D.C., and I am right near D.C., so I'm going to have to go see that. It looks amazing. It does look amazing. I would like to get to see that, too. And until uh, Susan posted that, I didn't realize that Americans really were trying to have a different look. They no. were trying not to follow um, London and Paris, and I because everyone followed London and Paris, right? So that was the that, see. I learned. I was I was still fascinated by the idea that at the time of the after the American Revolution, the entire question of what we were going to look like, how Americans were going to dress, is a really big question. I had no, I not even thought of it, and now I want to spend like six hours in this museum checking out what we looked like. So I totally want to go see that exhibit now. I do too. There, there are several that I'd like to see. Um, there's also one in um, in New York at the Fashion Institute of Technology, which um, it's just, it's a again, it's not my time period, but it just looks so interesting. Proust's Mistress, and um, some of the clothes that I've seen are they're just fantastic. I mean, it's it's the art of um, the the fashion from that time period is it's just extraordinary. There is a woman who I follow on Instagram who recreates historical costume and much of her of her photography is extreme close-ups of specific details of either of what she's creating or something that she's bought so that she can figure out how it was done. Uh-huh. And even just the artistry of sewing a hem is incredible. Yeah, it's it's really interesting. We had gone I had gone to see um um, I, I, I don't know if this is the same person, um, Estrita, hmm, I can't remember her last name, but she also, she does that too. She also specializes in uh, showing people how to treat the historical clothing that they have by building these mannequins that are as easy on these old fabrics as possible. Oh, that's smart. But she all she had done a book that had um, sh- where she showed the way the the um, the material the things are constructed and how the uh, say the embroidery is done or the way the buttonholes are done. I mean, this is a little deep for me because I'm just I'm <laughs> but it's still it's art, so it's fascinating. So I actually had on my list of questions for you because you mentioned rabbit holes. I wrote down, when you're doing historical research, is it like a rabbit hole? Are there subjects where you start reading and then, well, darn, it's, it's been six hours. I, I missed the day. Whoops. Does that ever happen to you? It happens way too much. <laughs> um, 
slows me down, hard to be disciplined. And a part of the problem is, you know, in the old days when I first started out way back in another century, <laughs> I had to go to the library. Oh, my and gosh. Now you don't even have to put on real pants. I know. <laughs> and there are materials that I would have had so much difficulty even finding at the library. I would have had to do interim library loan, even if I could do that. And now they're just available online. And so I can just be looking for one piece of information. And then I find this fabulous book. And I want to keep reading and reading and reading because it's so interesting. Or it has so many images that I had never seen before. Um, but yes, it's definitely a rabbit hole. And that's, I mean, that's one great outlet um, that the, the blog provides for us is, yep. you know, at least we feel like we're doing something useful with this, all this extra material that we uh, covered, which was not necessary to our books. I am. Um, I, I often sometimes myself think, oh, okay, I have to I have to come up with some content for tomorrow. I got to write a blog for tomorrow. I'm getting the sense that for you, you're not really going to run out of things to say about the details of history that you discover. You know, we don't run out, but sometimes you have a hard time thinking what you're going to post about. Yep. Um, because it, you, I might have been reading a book that was really, really fascinating, and I can find material that makes it an interesting blog. But other times, it's interesting to me, but I don't have a way of illustrating it. I don't have a way of making it relevant to um, my audience. It's just, it's it's way nerdy, even for nerdy history girls. <laughs> Too much nerdy. <laughs> Too much nerdy. Yes. I was fascinated by the um, post that you did on erotic watches. I had no idea that that was even a thing. And then, you know, you start talking about it. I'm like, well, of course this was a thing. Well, of course it was a thing. That totally makes sense. But I had no idea that existed. That was my feeling when I first discovered them. I had no idea it was a thing. And then you see it. Oh, but of course. It's a tiny little mechanical device. Of course, there's a mechanical curtain and some naked people behind it. Of course. Right, right, right. Well, that, that blog post came, um, I had done a, um, an author event with uh, the Carolyn, uh, Caroline Linden had sponsored, uh, Catherine Ash and I, and that was a, a question that Caroline asked um, at the author event. And I thought, oh my God, I, never, I haven't blogged about that. So that's where the blog post came from. Well, I am was, very grateful. That was fascinating. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Is there... Fun looking for them, the watches. I, um, I'm a little hesitant to go and Google, not because of the results, but because I'm going to be gone down a rabbit hole for like three hours looking at naughty watches. Well, I'll tell you, there's one link there um, that has a whole page of watches, and that pretty much covers the territory. So the link in the blog post um, will cover it pretty much for you. Okay. There, there aren't that many online, um, and I was very disappointed that I couldn't find the particular watch that was in the book, and I only had the black and white illustration. Um, See, I find that very strange because my understanding was that the internet was for porn. <laughs> yeah, I know. Right? Like, that's why it exists. Why right. are there not more pictures of naughty watches? Like, it seems right. like this would be a logical thing. Well, there is, there's one on YouTube. Good. I'll find that one. <laughs> they, they show how it works in motion. So that, 
It's very amusing. And this has been Erotic Watches with your host, Loretta Chase. Yes, yes. <laughs> and please sponsor your PBS station. So... <laughs> What are some of the other um, historical details that you've discovered with the research that you're doing for your current books? Are there any things that you that you've been like, oh my gosh, this is fascinating? Maybe it's only fascinating to me, but this is amazing. I, I've done it's uh, making discoveries. Um, I've done some. I've done lots of road books. This one, the one I'm doing now, seems to be somewhat of a road book. And um, making discoveries about different parts of London I haven't explored before, but also um, people traveling by water um, and what what that was like. And I it, it didn't occur to me how perilous this was. Um, and um, when I go to London uh, next year, I'm going to have to, I'm, I have to take some trips on the Thames to get a sense of this. But it was very difficult um, navigating the waterways because the tides and I had an understanding of this from reading other books, but I didn't realize quite how complicated it was until I actually looked into it. So it's that sort of thing. But, you know, I think some of it is just so nerdy that um, only the bits that are in the book are going to be interesting. <laughs> so you, you, you've done a lot of reading about traveling by water at that time, which I imagine took a lot of time. Yeah. It was very it was, slow. It was slow and it was dangerous because I'm setting my books in the 1830s, and by this time they have um, there's steam travel, there's steamboats going on the river, and they would create a huge wash and they were knocking over the other boats in the river. So it's uh, traveling um, became even more dangerous. But the other weird thing that is like so crazy, I don't understand it. They had these two bridges that were. I don't know how they were built. They were built by uh, crazy people. They're very crooked, and they have um, tons, like dozens of piers and holding them up across them. And they're made out of wood, and they're built in a strange angle so that boats are constantly crashing into them. Uh, <laughs> that seems bad. And, and I thought, well, why didn't they build them correctly? <laughs> <laughs> to coordinate it with the current so that boats wouldn't crash into them. Um, it, I just, that was, okay, so that's a little odd thing that I discovered. With the, the two bridges were the um, the Putney Bridge and, um, oh, what was the other one? I'll, I'll think of it later. But, yeah, they were these little, they were old wooden bridges, and from the time they were built, people were complaining about them. And <laughs> they didn't get replaced until one of them, I think, was the 1900s before it was re actually replaced. Wow. That's fascinating. And, you know, it's actually, it's kind of, it's kind of soothing <laughs> that, you know, complaints haven't changed that much. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I can imagine that complaint happening today just as easily. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. That's incredible. So, yeah. <laughs> Oh yeah, it was box. Um, it was the Battersea Bridge and Putney Bridge. Those were the two. They were just these old wooden bridges. So, do you have favorite museums or exhibitions that you like to visit for inspiration? Oh yeah. Um, when when I'm in New York, um, I do go to the Met. Um, I now have uh, some more on my list, but I haven't been able to get to New York um, recently. However, um, we are going to London. We have been to London the last couple of years so 
I love to go to the V&A. Um, I'm looking forward to going to the Museum of London. Um, I had not realized, but they have quite an extensive costume collection. Really? Yes. With the, and their curator is just this delightful man. He's, he's, he's a dandy. Um, he has great hair and a great beard, and he dresses really interestingly. Um, and they have this amazing costume collection that goes back to the 1500s. So that's something I'm looking forward to seeing. Um, the V&A is always interesting, the British Museum. I mean, we're going to spend a month there, and I will. I know I feel, I'm going to feel at the end of the month as though I didn't have enough time. That whole area of, like, South Kensington, I mean, you can spend weeks in, in any one of those museums. And spend hours and hours wandering through, and then even if you look at the same thing three different times, you'll see something yes. different each time. It's true. It's true. I often find that if I go to museums, like when we would go to the Met, I have favorite paintings I like to visit. Huh? Like if I if I haven't seen those paintings, I have to go make sure that I take a look at them, that you know, make sure they're still there. That I and and it's partially a challenge to see if I can find my way around because the place is so huge, I get lost. Yeah, it always yeah. takes me at least four tries to figure out which staircase is the one that goes down to the costume area. Oh yeah, I, <laughs> oh, I'm always getting lost in museums. I'm wondering now if I can use my GPS. To... <laughs> Google will be like, turn right, go down the yeah. stairs. Well, and I don't have a sense of direction anyway. I mean, I'm the kind of person who gets lost on an airplane leaving the ladies' room. <laughs> Really? Turn the wrong way, find myself, oh my God, if I'm going into the first class area, they have to politely chase, politely chase me out. Um, yeah, so museums are difficult, but eventually I emerge. One, um, one blog post I found about you is pretty old for the internet from, um, from 2007 about how fashion reveals a character. And it was specifically about Jessica from, from Lord of Scoundrels, that the way she dressed was a way for her clothing to be a conflict and also to communicate a lot about her. And I found that really interesting because I love the scenes in romances where it, it must be very boring to, to write or it could be it must be very difficult to make interesting. But when the characters are all in a room together looking at fashion plates and talking about the clothes they're going to order or going out to go shopping for clothes, I find that fascinating. I want more, A, I want more girl shopping in my romance, but the idea that clothing communicates so much about a character, I hadn't thought about it, but it's very, very true. I think it's, um, I think of it as, as a character. The clothing um, is a character? As a, as, as a character in the, as it's, it expresses character. It is a character. If if you're going to have clothing in a scene, it needs to be doing something. It has to serve a purpose. There, I don't describe clothing in a scene where it doesn't have a purpose. If I'm describing it, it's doing something. It's accomplishing something. Very often, I describe it from the man's point of view, um, partly because uh, it gives your perspective on the male think and the way he's viewing the heroine, but also because he's translating um, what would ordinarily be a very complicated fashion terms into just the sort of simple language. Um, if I try to use the language that I'm getting out of the fashion books, I'm concerned that my reader's going to fall asleep right. or they're not going to understand. They're not going to be able to picture it. But if I give it from the man's point of view and he's not talking about, uh, he's not, 
using those fashion details, but it's a lot a lot of it is opinion or it's analogy. Um, it makes the picture clearer at the same time that it's giving his perspective on the heroine. But also the way she dressed, she's dressed tells you something about her, um, whether she's disheveled or how close, how fashionable she is. Um, that was something that made the dressmakers books just so much fun to work with, particularly, well, the first book when Clara doesn't care about how she looks and her mother has no taste. And there are those conflicts with the dressmakers who are horrified. <laughs> yeah. Because to them, that this is the be-all and end-all. The, the way you look tells the world so much, and you have to tell it the right things. So, yeah, yeah. And how uh, that her evolution, I think, is it was interesting for me to write. I hope it was interesting for the readers. Are there any pieces of clothing that you really love writing about? Um, there are two things. Well, the time period, one of the things I love about the time period I'm doing now is the, in the 1830s is it's so crazy and exuberant. Um, it, they, those huge sleeves that are all, that they have to use the puffs underneath to keep them off. You could hide an entire roasted turkey in those sleeves. Yes. Yeah. Back like two Thanksgiving dinners. They're so huge. They're huge. <laughs> And the skirts, they're they're starting to come out, but they hadn't yet got the hoop thing going. Yep. But, so that they weren't they weren't out that much, but they are, and they make such a strange shape for the woman. But the thing I really love is the hair. It's so nutty. They have these big loops and braids that coming straight up out of their head, and then they like shoot, put arrows through them. And I uh, recently showed Susan a picture. We're trying to figure out where the thing came from. But this woman has what looks like chopsticks going through the, the, little, the big curls on the top of her head. And they have bells on the end of them. Well, you know when she's coming in the room. <laughs> and I was thinking, does she tinkle when she comes in? <laughs> Yeah. That would be like the equivalent of leaving the microphone on when you go to the bathroom. Like, yes. the poor girls to the water closet. Jingle, 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 jingle. Like, everyone knows where she is. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, I love that. I think I might have to use that at some point and uh, see or something like it. But I vote yeah. yes. My vote yes. is definitely yes. But I, I do love the hair, um, particularly in this time period. And it's like within a few years, it gets down, it goes down and droopy and it's very close to the head and it's not as interesting. That, that's when they start going for that little sweet-faced, innocent look. But this is when women were still still dressing wild and I love it. It's a little bit like the 80s, mm-hmm. you know, the big hair. And then that also the 1700s Marie Antoinette period, the big hair. Yep. Only this isn't like a big pile of hair or beehive on your head. It's They make arrangements. They're architectural arrangements. They're just fascinating. Well, you can tell because I'm so excited talking about it. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I love them. It's great. And, and they put it together. They didn't have hairspray and lacquer. So no, you would use like uh, egg and wax and, and lard. Lard. Oh, then your hair smells great. Well, actually, it didn't smell bad. It, um, it, it mixed herbs with the lard, and so you would have like rosemary or lavender Ooh. or something like that. Um, the the, uh, the the women, the milliners and uh, mantua makers in uh, Colonial Williamsburg, have experimented with the the pomades that were used in the time period, and they've actually become converts to that uh, style of maintaining their hair, and they wow. don't use 
regular shampoos anymore. They use the same methods that were used in the 1700s. Um, and their hair is like so healthy now, they don't want to go back to the normal way of doing things. Oh, that's fascinating. It must be a, a sort of a conditioner. It apparently is. Um, you have to comb your hair every single night, comb it out, and they use something like what would be a dry shampoo today. Right. But uh, apparently the pomades, these um, uh, grease-based uh, things like conditioners that they put in their hair and really make the hair very healthy. It opens your mind um, yeah. to, okay, maybe this isn't the only way to do things. I, I can't say that I'm going to go um, enlarge the diameter of my sleeves <laughs> per se, but there are some things I could totally bring back. I mean, if you were, if you were going to try to sneak leftovers out of the all you could eat buffet, I can see those sleeves bring very handy, especially if they came equipped, like to hold the structure, if they had like Tupperware built in, Hey, you could put, you could use Tupperware as an interior structure for your hair too. Oh yeah. Oh, oh yeah. It's amazing to me that everything was so full. It was the hair was full, the yep. sleeves were full, the the skirts were full. Yep. It, it was. Uh, it's just fun, and it makes it fun um, to write about. And the women like that physically would take up a lot of space. Yes, they would. Although not as much as when they started wearing the, the crinolines. Mm -hmm. um, the were much wider than these, but yes, because the sleeves would take up so much space, and that's always something. Interesting what I'm doing is seeing like if they're both in a carriage, the carriage is not that big. So they're very squished together and her sleeves are taking up a lot of room. Um, and, and you have to think about those things like he can't just grab her arm because there's a puff thing on her arm. <laughs> there's like two roast turkeys and a ham in the way. Right. Can he get his hand around? It? Well, actually he can because it's the puffs are filled with very soft um, like wool or, or uh feathers or something. They're very soft and squishable. So if she wanted to take a nap, she is set. She's set. Just put her arms up. Yes. I hadn't thought about that. You oh, know, Sarah, I might use that in a sleeve. Please do. I, um, I saw a, f a fundraising effort online for a travel hoodie or jacket. And one of the features was that the inside of the hood was lined with a very soft fabric and then it was inflatable so that you could just zip up the hood and then you'd have a a pillow basically surrounding the sides of your head so you could just go to sleep. But if you had big puffy sleeves and yeah. one sleeve had lunch and the other sleeve was a pillow, <laughs> like you don't need anything. You're all set. You're so set. Like forget a man. You are good. Yeah. You have yeah. you have lunch for weeks and you have your own pillow. No matter where you go, all is well. Yeah. Well, <laughs> well it's really fun. I, I mean, I love, I love doing it. I also like um, have, when I have the opportunity to look at real dresses from the time period, um, it's it's just amazing to me the uh, the craftsmanship and and just the ingenuity. Oh yeah, yeah. So yeah, it's lovely. It's it makes me. It's one of the things that makes it so great to be a writer because I mean this is just fun to do as it is, but to have it be part of your work and something you incorporate into your work is just bonus. And in a way, you not only get to bring the history into the present, but you also get to bring the people who wore these creations and the people who figured out how to make them into the present. Like you get to bring them sort of back to life in a way. Yeah. Yeah. And it's also um, 
being able to pay more attention to the women's world. Oh, yes, please. Overlooked so much in uh, historical uh, books, and particularly even in, in social histories, the women get short shrift. So it's really great in the historical romance um, to work, to, because so much is from the woman's point of view. You can cover so much of the um, territory of what women were doing. That was another fabulous aspect of doing the dressmakers, because these were working women, um, and they were very ambitious working women. And it was an opportunity to show that aspect because, you know, very often in Regencies, and I, I did this for years and will continue to do it, we're talking about the ballroom scenes, um, yep. scenes in the houses. It's nice to periodically go into a different world where women are in charge. Yep. And in Regencies, especially in historical romance, you have set areas that everyone's sort of familiar with. Like, mm-hmm. I would like to think that if I went back in time, I would know what not to do at All Max, and I probably wouldn't get in the door because no one would give me a voucher. But I know enough about, you know, All Max, what to wear when it's raining, what to wear when you go to the park, um, you know, what, what balls are like. It's really, really crowded. I would hate it because I'm way too introverted for anything that's described as a crush. I want to avoid all things described as crushes. But the part where they go shopping. Oh, uh, yeah. that that is like the highlight, especially with with a, with, like, with the dressmaker series. Like it's just a lot of shopping and it's a women's only domain. Like dudes don't go hang out in the in the place where you get your dresses fitted. Right. Right. And I, I loved I loved that part of it. And even and when I uh, the last time I was in London, I walked up St. James's Street and walked down St. James's Street. To, to get a sense of that world, and I knew what building was going to be where my dressmakers were. Um, and I have I have such a strong sense of the women going in. It was like um, Gertrude, Lady Gertrude mm-hmm. in the in the Vixen um, in Velvet. The, the, her shopping in the place. This I had such a clear image of the mannequins and the interactions with the people and the upstairs and the downstairs of the business. I just loved that world, and it's one that we don't enter very often. No, there's it, it, there's the everlasting perennial sense that if it's surrounded by and entirely populated by women and pat- uh, and the patrons were women, then it is clearly not worth very much, and we don't need to pay much attention to it. You're right, right. I studied abroad twice and once, in, both times in Spain, but once in a university in Salamanca that was, I think the university is celebrating its 800th anniversary this year. Ah. And so I would, you know, be in this super modern classroom inside a building that was, you know, 700 odd years old. No big deal. Like there were statues and it was Ferdinand and Isabella, you know, who sent Columbus like them. Like, yeah. Okay. That's twist up your mind. Oh my gosh. It was so strange. And the thing I remember thinking, and it's, and I, and I think similarly when I'm looking at exhibits of, of historical clothing, um, or when you look at an archeological exhibit, okay, armaments and, you know, knives and stuff like that. Okay. That's interesting. But if you find like a sewing needle or something that was used by somebody on a daily basis, I find that fascinating. And I would walk down these streets in, in Salamanca and be like, I am touching a wall because there's a car going by that probably someone has touched this wall for hundreds and hundreds of years, longer than the country I live in has existed, longer than a lot of things have existed. I'm, and this wall and I are right here right now. That's amazing. And then I look at, and I look at a historical piece of clothing and I'm like, okay, someone made this. 
A right. person made that tiny, tiny stitch. A person made this embroidery and then another person wore it. Like, we don't know anything about those people, but we got this dress. Yeah. Yeah. I, oh yeah. So, well, there's so many things like that. It's like, um, and because there, there is not, we don't have that in this country. No. So that, that's the excitement when you, when you go abroad because you're, you're in environments that have been around for, you know, as you said, 800 years, a thousand years, whatever. Um, and, um, and, I'm so grateful that we can we can still see these artifacts. Um, that I think Susan's done posts showing like um, pins yeah. that, were, that that were made, and um, and looking at the sewing needles and the and the scissors, and I'm and we're both fascinated by um, automatons. Oh um, goodness, yes. Those clock, all those clockwork mechanisms, and you know, I thought oh. You know, it's very cool. It's in the 1800s, but we're we're finding stuff going back to the 1600s. Um, just this amazing work. Um, one thing for me was um, in Greenwich, going to Greenwich, and seeing the um, the clock. Um, what's yep. his name's clock? <laughs> and thinking, okay, he did this in whatever it was, the late 1700s, early 1800s, and there it is, and it's still working. It's running. You mean the uh, the shepherd gate clock? No, no. This is the the longitude clock. Oh, 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 okay. What's the name of the Harrison Harrison's clock? Yes. They had all of Harrison's clocks. And to me it's amazing. They had all of Harrison's clocks in the Greenwich Observatory. Um it, it, it just boggled my mind. <laughs> you know. I mean it was almost the same as having the person there. Oh my God! Here, those are the clocks that, that I read about in the books, and that I mean that experience for me that just never ends. I'm reading, I, I read something, I've done all my research, and then I get to actually see the place. Um, and sometimes the building I'm interested in is no longer there, but I'm standing on the spot where it was. Yes, it's yeah. I get chills. Oh, me too. It was like um, writing the book that was set in Egypt. They're visiting monuments that had been already in existence for thousands of years, um, and yet I'm setting a book that's set in the in the um, early 1800s, uh, and trying to get the perspective of how people looked at those things then, and what was, you know, and it was thrilling to them because they had nothing like that. Yep. And and, okay. the, and the various perspectives of what's history is it will break your brain if you think about it too much. Yeah. <laughs> so I have questions, and oddly enough, one of them does relate to some of the books that you wrote that are set around archaeology in Egypt. Um, so Sherry Lynn asked me to tell you that she's pretty sure that if she ever got the chance to meet you, she would squee, try to hug you, turn bright red, and run away screaming. <laughs> Because to her, Lord of Scoundrels and Mr. Impossible are basically perfection and what she uses to judge all romance novels. And she used to daydream. This is my favorite part. I love this. Because you've done this. And she's like, she's right on because you've done this before. She used to daydream about a sequel to Lord of Scoundrels where Dominic falls for the daughter of the couple from the last Hellion. Cousinhood be damned. Speaking of which, could you write that? Is what she wants to know. (laughs) Um... 
Well, I don't know if I could write that. Not but that, you know, not that we do books to order or anything like that. No, no. Well, I always say that if the inspiration comes, of course I'm going to write it. Well, of course. Um, but the, the one difficulty for me now is just that I've been away from those. You know, those books were written such a long time ago. Yep. That it's hard to get into that head. I'm, I'm not even, I'm not that person. Um, and I have this, and what may be blocking me too is I have this terror. What if I did that and it just didn't live up to anyone's expectations? I mean, it was scary enough doing the fourth book in the Dressmaker series. <laughs> oh boy, Claire is guy had better be the right guy or the readers are just not going to be very happy with me. Um, so can you imagine that? Like yep. times 10? Oh, you know, no big deal. No, Pressure. Yeah, right. Okay, so maybe someone else will write it. I'm not sure I can, I don't think I can pull it off. Cause I never say never. No, no, because one of my, one of my favorite books of yours is uh, Last Night's Scandal, where you uh-huh. brought back children from prior books as adults. Yeah, that was, and that was tricky. It took me four years to figure out how to do it. Oh, I love it. Um, Those four years were entirely worth it, in my opinion. I love that book. Oh, thank you. Um, You do uh, child characters and um, how, so you have to figure out how they have evolved. What, and I I try not to make them too much older because I, beyond a certain I still wanted to get some of that adolescent mind in there. And yep. So I couldn't make them too much older, but they still had to be adults, and that was you know, that was the scary and tricky part. Um, and it took me a while. And I I remember my husband and I brainstorming over my several failed attempts to figure out what it really get the right handle on um, Olivia, because you could I could see where Kyle was going, where Lyle was going, but I couldn't. But Olivia was trickier. And then I think it was in the course of this brainstorming session, we had that idea of the scene where she's in the middle of this group of men. And it's sort of this Scarlett O'Hara kind of thing, only right. she's more daring. Um, and that was, that was, that kind of set it for me. And once I get, sometimes it's just, you know, you had asked earlier about where it starts. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it, it's something like that. You get the scene in your head, and then you understand who the character is. Yep. There's that sort of uh, the, the, the pivotal moment at which yes. all the other book can, the, all the other parts of the book can rotate around that one sort of the the what's that called the the linchpin that holds okay. the that holds the joint together. Everything will rotate smoothly because you've got that centerpiece of the character. That was like nine different metaphors in one sentence. <laughs> I'm so proud yeah. of myself right you now. You should be. That's impressive. Wow. That's very- I, I get a snack. That's what I get. <laughs> <laughs> now, I have been asked to ask you about your thoughts on the first original cover of Lord of Scoundrels. Um, I don't think it's a big secret. I was not happy with that cover. <laughs> and now, you know, when people make fun of it, I'm right there with them. Uh, I've heard, I don't know, there was something about, um, it looked like a bed of baby food. or I. The thing is, it was those are supposed to be rhododendrons, that important scene in the rhododendrons. And I was like, where did they get this? <laughs> It's very, but, very hot pink and orange. Uh, yeah, the colors and yeah, I was not. No, I wasn't happy. I didn't love it. But I, what I, they took that scene, 
and they redid the colors and they put it as a step back when they redid the cover for Lord the second the next edition and it worked it totally they, worked totally worked when they changed the kind of and it became the clinch and the in the step back and that I thought it was really nice that's the, the one where um, she's looking over her shoulder on the cover yes yes that and it, it is a really interesting evolution of cover style too yeah that was I don't know how many years apart they were but it was a, yeah it, I was I was very happy with that cover uh, in fact I've been pretty happy with the covers I've had from Avon they, they've done some nice nice work they do beautiful covers with a lot of the the use of color Yes. Like you can tell them from across the room, not just because of the branding, but because the the attention to color is, is fascinating. It's not just, oh, here's a jewel tone dress. There's right. a lot of, of use of color that makes those covers stand out. Yes. There there's some really nice design and I I I heard at the last event that I did, more than one person said to me they had not read my books before and they were attracted to the cover yep. and they picked it up and that's what got them to buy the book. And I said, Avon's doing, their art department's doing exactly what they're supposed to be doing. Nice job, cover art. <laughs> yeah. Well done. Because usually you hear about the covers, it's like, oh, I could never read that. What are you talking about? Yeah, yeah. I, I think they've been doing a beautiful job. I mean, I've, I've looked at so many people, the, the covers that they do, beautiful. they've done beautiful covers for Sarah McLean and... Yep. Um, so yeah, they, they really, and they evolve. I've noticed that, that yes. in subtle ways. They do. Yeah. So I have some more questions from Sherry Lynn. Do you ever think about writing contemporaries? Um, I have, I've thought about it, but it, it's, um, way too intimidating. Um, <laughs> I totally understand. And also I'd like the escapist element of writing in uh, writing historical romances, um, it's part of, you know, escape from the real world, which is, mm -hmm. and there's so many things that you have to deal with in a contemporary romance that I don't have to deal with in a historical romance. Um, and there are elements that I use in historical romance that wouldn't make any sense in contemporary. For instance, the class uh, structure thing. You, the, you can have the conflict between men and women, and that's perennial. But the, the class structure is a really interesting element that, that goes into the stories that I couldn't do in contemporaries. Um, I would also have to deal with, um, with um, birth control. Yep. Uh, I would have to deal with venereal disease. Whereas we just sort of slop it over in historical romance. We pretend like it's not really there. Um, <laughs> But it's hard to write a contemporary without, you know, I mean, you can do it, but if they're going to have sex, are you going to talk about condoms or not? Yep. Um, and the other thing is, you know, there's people like, okay, um, Susan Elizabeth Phillips. It's like, okay, she's doing it. <laughs> there's no way I'm going to write like that. There's no way I'm going to live up to that. So I'll stay in my place and, and let the people who really know what they're doing do contemporaries. <laughs> I, I, I love her books. I just absolutely love them. I, I'm in awe that she can make me care about football players. Um, so yeah, and I, I could never do that. So it's, it's more fun for me to just read them. I can totally to understand that. 
plus the inherent tension in historical is these two people want to be alone together and they're not allowed to be. And yeah. in a contemporary, it's the reverse of that. There's not much standing in the way of two people who want to go be alone together. Like there right. is really nothing standing in the way there. You go most of the time. It's not that difficult to set up. Whereas with historicals, everything stands in the way of you guys being alone together because that's not supposed to happen. Yes. Yeah. And that makes that makes it's a built-in conflict. So yes. In some ways, it makes it harder uh, because you have to figure out logistics. I'll come up with ideas for scenes, and I'll say, well, well that can't happen. That's she. Why would she be doing that? Why would she be there? <laughs> she, she's not allowed to do that. Well, how do I get her? How do I get around that? Um, what was the last book? Was this the thing where he put, had to put Clara in her little disguises that he thought were ridiculous, and they're in, um, and they're in the hackney. Uh, they're in the hackney cabs and, and uh, other vehicles where people can't see her. Um, but they don't have the, the freedom of movement is the really interesting difference. Uh, one of the many interesting differences between historicals and contemporaries, because in contemporaries, we just take it for granted. Women have freedom of movement. You want to go someplace, you get in your car and go. Right. Um, in the historical, no. No, not if you're a woman of the upper classes. You oh, don't no. go anywhere on your own. And uh, whatever it is that you choose to get you where you're going is going to take forever and a year. Yes. And there's going to be a whole lot of forced proximity, maybe with people you're not supposed to be alone with. Yes, yes. Which, that's that's part of the fun of it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I read about London traffic in, in the 1800s, and I, it was amazing anyone got anywhere. And I was reading that a lot of people walked because it was much faster than trying to get into a vehicle and get anywhere because the traffic was so horrible. You don't think about this, that there are carts in the road yep. and the, the dogs are running around and you know people are just crossing with blindly. Um, and there isn't much order to the way the traffic is moving. So it's just, it's, uh, it's chaos um, and it's just easier to be on your feet. The other thing I found out, which I haven't incorporated yet, but I intend to, is it was extremely noisy. Oh, yes. Uh, and you couldn't hear yourself uh, talk if you're um, on many of the streets of London. And if you wanted to have a conversation, you had to turn into one of the alleys or courts to have enough quiet so you could hear what the other person was saying. And I hadn't realized how noisy it was, but when you think about it, it's obvious. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, the iron wheels and the cobblestones or the wood or whatever that surfaces on on the roads. So yeah, it's when you, it's a very different world. Um, is say London then, London now. And yet, we all still complain about the traffic. Yes, I mean that's just a universal human thing. Right, right. We make traffic. You know, you, we cluster into the into our cities, and we make traffic one way or another. My husband hates traffic, so of course we moved from New Jersey to Maryland. So we lived outside the New York metro area. Now we live outside the DC metro area. So we just have all the traffic. And I like to torture him because I'm horrible. Um, he's like, "Oh, we're in traffic," and I look at him and I go, "No, you are the traffic." <laughs> And then he just like like I would like I would like to explode with anger right now, but I cannot. Like I watch his blood pressure go up. <laughs> Plus, I'm a horrible person. Yeah. Oh, well, that's the fun of torturing your husband. Yes, and, that's why you, you know. have one. <laughs> yes. Right. It's good to have someone near at hand for that purpose. 
So and also, for me, it's good practice for my stories. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Being trapped in a car is great for dialogue. So yeah. if you could, this is a, another question from Sherry Lynn. If you could change one of the rules about romance, are there any you'd like to alter or get rid of? Rules about romance. Yes. Like the, you know, give me an example. Well, you have, is there anything where you, I think what she's trying to say is that when you're, when you're writing, is there ever a point where you're like, well, I wish I didn't have to do it this way, but I have to do it this way because it's a romance. Or are you most happy within the genre boundaries? I really like working within the boundaries. I need structure. Otherwise, I go off in a hundred different directions. When I was first um, trying to write um, novels, mm -hmm. my problem was I couldn't hold them together. They just went off. And there was no really, there was a beginning, but there was never really a middle and an end. And romance gave me that structure. Um, and I like working inside it. Um, and I like being up against the challenge of working inside it. And one of the reasons I came to writing romance was that a happy ending. You know, love conquers all. That's why I'm here. Um, I think that's, you're in genre writing, I would think, because you believe in the genre. I mean, if I'm writing, if I were writing uh, detective stories, I would want to make sure that the perpetrator of the crime was brought to justice by the end of the story. And it's the same thing for me with romance that, um, yes, this, whatever is going on in the story, I, I need that happy ending. Right. The other thing is that the structure, I use a three-act structure in my story. And I think within that three-act um, structure, I have now, after all these years, a sense of what needs to happen in each act in terms of the relationship and development. And it's not always something I can articulate. I tend to write organically. It's not... Um, I, d I don't analyze my work very much, but I know that, you know, uh, there's going to be a certain level of smoochies in the beginning, and <laughs> I know I have to build up the smoochies towards the middle, and then maybe right after that, we got the super smoochies. It's like in a movie, <laughs> no, like in action movies, there's uh, that book, um, Monster, um, that was, uh, uh, John Gregory Dunn wrote about making a movie and they talked about the, the action movies where you had to have whammy, big whammy, big, big whammy. And I think of that in terms of sexuality, the, the sexual relationship of the characters that you have the smoochies and then you have the bigger smoochies and then you have super smoochies. <laughs> That makes total sense to me. Like I'm, I'm totally charmed by the word smoochies, but yes, that's absolutely true. Yeah. And I like having, knowing that's where I'm going with the relationship. Um, I, it gives me um, a form to build my story right. on. And it's not necessarily I draw a chart and say, this is when they're going to have sex, or this is when they're going to have the first kiss. That's going to happen when that's going to happen. But I have a sense of what I'm building up to as I'm going along in the story. So I think, um, I may think of something later that I object to in the, the rules of the genre, but at this point, I think the, the rules have been pretty much my friend um, because they keep my mind, my sort of ADD mind, um, within a, a structure where I can actually work and complete something eventually. Right. That makes sense. So do you have a favorite romance or some favorite romances that exist permanently on your keeper shelf? 
I have a couple. I don't read that much romance, but a couple have had huge impact on me. Um, and I just love them, and I go back and read them again. So I love Jennifer Cruz's Bethany. Um, I have Susan Elizabeth Phillips' Heaven, Texas. I mean, I've loved all her books, but for some reason that one, I just, that's special. Um, Edith Layton, I still have kept her Regencies because when I was first looking at writing Regencies, she was the person that gave me the idea that this was something that would, I could fit into. I love um, her books. I yeah. love her books. I actually have on my schedule um, an interview with her son and her daughter to talk about how they are preserving her legacy as a writer. Uh-huh. And, I, and I I cannot wait. But I, I, you're, I, I'm not surprised that she's on your keeper shelf. I have several of hers that I just adore. Yeah, I was, well, love and love and disguise. I was just glancing at it because I've got a stack of books that need to be put away. But you know, it's, love and disguise. I thought was just brilliant, and she was a beautiful writer. It, oh yes, not not simply that she told a good story, but her writing was just beautiful, um, and it was such a pleasure. To, because I would sit down and I felt. It. I'm reading um, a romance that's on the level of literature in, in terms of the writing style. Oh, um, I so agree. Yeah, yeah. So she's she's one of them. Um, those are the those those are the main ones who come to mind. I mean, uh, you know, I, I like I like Julia Quinn's work, and I like Eloisa James's work, and um, I, I like Sarah McLean's work, and I love Laurie Gerke and. But the, the ones I've mentioned are the people who are the, you know, they just stay on the keeper shelf and I take them off and take them down and read them periodically or just go back and read a favorite scene or something like that. And that is all for this week's podcast. I want to thank Loretta Chase for hanging out with me and talking about all the things. If you are thinking that you would like to take a look at some of the links that we discussed, specifically the Naughty Watches, I will have links to all of these places, plus the museums, plus the costume exhibits, plus the links about dressing characters on the podcast entry at smartbitchestrashybooks.com slash podcast. You can check out all of the books we discussed, or you can go to itunes.com slash dbsa for the iTunes store collection of the books that we discuss in this episode as well. Our transcript this week is sponsored by Judy, and she is a listener overseas who contacted me because she loves the transcripts and she wanted to sponsor one. When I asked her for a bio, she wanted me to tell you that she tends to overspend on romance novels and perfume. I know this story. She really values our efforts to make the transcripts available and says thanks to Garlic Knitter, maybe more than she knows. I agree. Garlic Knitter does an outstanding job, especially when it's a podcast of like the group of five of us. And I am so pleased to have Judy sponsor the transcript. Thank you, Judy. You're excellent. Our music is always provided by Sassy Outwater. You can find her on Twitter at Sassy Outwater. This is the Pete Bog Fairies. This track is called Jake's on a Plane. You can find this album at Amazon. It's from the album Black House, and it's also available at iTunes or wherever you like to buy your fine and funky music. If you have questions or suggestions, you're thinking, I have a burning topic that I must have discussed in the podcast. That's cool. You can call and leave us a voicemail at one two zero one three seven one three two seven two, or you can email me at sbjpodcast at gmail.com 
I love hearing from you because you're all really awesome. And if you would like to have a look at our Patreon page, I would be very grateful indeed. It is patreon.com slash smartbitches. Monthly pledges, starting with as little as a dollar, help the show immeasurably. So if you've had a look, if you sponsored the show, I am truly, truly thankful and very grateful for your support. Thank you very much. Coming up next week, me, other people, talking about romance novels, because that's what we do here. But in the meantime, on behalf of Loretta Chase and everyone here, including Orville, my sound engineer, who's trying to get inside the sound box, we wish you the very best of reading. Have an excellent weekend. <laughs>